Welcome to Carmichael's latest podcast, When a Charity Inspector Calls. I'm Derek O'Reilly, Training Manager in Carmichael, and with me is Dermot O'Curbui, Carmichael CEO. Welcome, Dermot. Thank you. Today, we're going to talk about recent events in Child Fund Ireland. But firstly, just to say that we've had no dealings with Child Fund Ireland, have no special insights into what went on in the charity, and our commentary in this podcast is based solely on the charity inspector's findings and the wider implications for all charity trustees and charities. So, Dermid, what's going on in Child Fund Ireland? Uh, the charity regulator, which has been established under the Charities Act of 2009, really got effective in the whole area of inspecting charities in 2016 after the console issue and the charity regulator has powers under the act under section 66 of the act where they are seriously concerned about issues going on in the charity to appoint an inspector to investigate and to report back and what we have here is one of the latest reports three that were commissioned by the charity regulator where they felt that they needed to appoint inspectors and this one is on the child fund ireland charity and it raises a number of serious issues that we felt it important to discuss in terms of the wider implications for all charities and probably best to say that you know we had three inspectors report there's over eleven and a half thousand charities um, so things unfortunately don't go perfectly well in all charities and there are some charities that are not running to the proper standards and this is one of them that has been identified and we have a, a report in the public domain and raising some significant findings um, that have implications for all charity trustees to sort of look at and say, oh, could that be us or or some of these things might be relevant to us or something that we need to reassure ourselves as a charity and as a board of trustees that we are taking the appropriate action that we would not be in the unfortunate position in some future stage where we are the subject matter of an inspector's report. I know the inspector's report identified major weaknesses in the charity's governance, such as an ineffective board, a lack of sufficient board in, uh, oversight, an inappropriate structure fi- for financial uh, governance, and inadequate action taken by the board to address identified issues. How can this occur and where does the responsibility lie in the organisation for governance and for financial oversight? Before I go into your answering the particular question, Derek, I think it's important just to remind the listeners what the type of findings were and they're quite significant. So I'm, go- I'm just going to go through them. Um, as you said, the f- one of the key opening findings was inadequate action taken by the board to address identified issues. This is when the charity regulator contacted the charity trustees about some concerns that the regulator had and they felt it was inadequate response by the board. The inspectors found that the board was ineffective and did not act in a timely manner to recommendations from three reports that the charity commissioned themselves that highlighted a range of matters that required urgent attention by the charity. They found that there was a lack of sufficient board oversight on the activities and finances of the charity. They found that there was an inappropriate structure for the financial governance of the charity where The CEO had most of the approval authority and responsible for internal control. The CEO was a member of the Finance and Audit Committee. Beginning, we're seeing problems there immediately with with that. Inadequate oversight um, of the credit card and travel expenditure. Delays in circulating the board minutes with issues over the accuracies of those minutes. They found that the charity recruited staff without following the policies of of the charity. 
They found that staff were employed without proper contracts of employment. They found excessive spending on types of expenditure on spending in restaurants. Um, there was concerns over disposable of a charity assets. There was no evidence that the charity used expense forms, that their policies had said all expenses must be completed um, by completing an expense form and supported by documentation. There was no strategic plan, inadequate communications by the charity with its funders. Another problem they found is that the charity was occupying an office space that was not appropriate for the size and the cost implications for that charity. Another problem they identified in the inspector's report that the majority of the board members exceeded the documented tenure that the charity had set out for its board members. No evidence of formal board training, no evidence that there was any proper induction process done. So you can see there's a whole raft of critical issues that go to the heart of the governance. And your question was asking who is responsible. It's like the buck stops with the charity board. The charity trustees are legally responsible for the oversight, direction and control of a charity. And when they fail to understand their role and also when they fail to apply their responsibilities and duties, then things start going wrong in a charity. And that's what we've had in this particular organisation is serious weaknesses have occurred. The board lacked the proper oversight and lacked taking corrective action to even take action against problems that were identified by the organisation itself, reports that were commissioned and put to the board highlighting serious weaknesses in how the charity was being run and inadequate or no action taken about it. So this is, this is one of the sort of goes to the heart of if the board is responsible for the governance, it needs to make sure that it has good systems in place and that those systems are checked and reviewed to make sure that they're fit for purpose and that they're actually being applied. So we saw a raft of things that the, they could tick the box and say, here's our expense policy. But the practice was that nobody adhered to the policy. And that, that can give sometimes a false security for, for some boards if they have a policy in place and say, here we go, here's our policy. But a policy is only as good as its implementation. And if the implementation is not adequate, then we have these sort of problems. And the, the, these are a particularly worrying list of problems that, you know, that... Uh, that the, this litany of issues, really, when you look at it from the outside. It would be rare that charities would have all of these, but sometimes you, you can have similar patterns emerging in other charities. If Because you may be working very, very well for a period of time, and it might be quite some time. And I, I, I was just pulling out one of our own policies for another matter for, for, for the chair, and it's six, seven years since we looked at that policy. Now, there hasn't been no particular issue in it, but you can tend to forget to sort of go, is this policy still relevant? Has there anything changed? Do we need to review it? Do we need to have a discussion on it? Do we need to test how effective is that policy being implemented on the ground? So even well-run charities will sometimes get into a, a stream that everything is fine, and then suddenly there is an issue, and you look at, well, we, we, we forgot to do this, or we didn't review this, or we... We ignored it because we thought things were hunky-dory. Or we've been told by our CEO that everything is right. And what we've seen here, and, and, and as you said at the beginning, we don't know the organisation, we've had no direct dealings with them, but reading the inspector's report, there's a very dominant CEO at, at, at the heart of these sort of issues, where the board didn't challenge sufficiently, didn't, um, didn't hold that CEO to account for the use of the, the charitable resources and for the implementation of the actions to achieve the charitable purpose. So again, 
when you have a domineering, powerful CEO and a weak, ineffectual board, you're on a recipe for disaster and things will slip and things So will it really does underline that need for boards to understand their responsibility for proper oversight of the organisation? It does, it does. And it does means it's understanding, but also then acting on what does that mean in practice? What sort of actions do we need to do? What sort of oversight and checks do we need to put in place? What other channels of communication do we need to put in, 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 in it? And again, you, sometimes you may have, I mentioned the other dominant CEO. In this case, again, it seems to have been that there was a close working relationship between the head of finance and the CEO. And then that, that's, that, that escalates your sort of your, your red alert sort of thing where, where if the chief executive and the chief finance person are working contrary to the best interests of the charity or for their own personal interest, and there is nobody holding them to account, then things can go wrong. And we've seen this as a child fund would be an example of where how things can go wrong, go horribly wrong. Yes, and in fact, in child fund, there was a finance and audit subcommittee in place, but clearly that wasn't working properly. Again, you know, it's going to back to the tick boxes. We have a finance and audit committee. It's how it operates. And from the reading again of the, the inspector's report, it seemed that the chief executive attended that particular committee and dominated and controlled and it was not again when you have the it's not good practice to have your CEO sitting on your audit and finance committee and there's good reasons for that if there are issues or concerns that board members on that committee can question the other staff members or those staff members can raise concerns about we have an expense policy but they're not being adhered to or we have a procurement policy but we're not adhering to it or we're concerned about certain practices there isn't that channel. If the CEO is in there and is a powerful CEO, the staff are may be reluctant to raise those those concerns. So it's not good practice. So having the fact that they had a committee is fine, but how that committee operates and how the members of that committee raises raises concerns and and those those concerns and those issues were were highlighted in the inspector's report. Yeah, I think you've put your finger on something as well, which can be quite challenging for some trustees and members of subcommittees is to ask the hard questions. And sometimes people will maybe shy away from asking the really difficult questions because they feel, okay, I'm going to step on people's toes or I'm going to make somebody angry or whatever. But really, at the end of the day, it is important that you are in a position where you can make people angry within your own organisation. This is one that goes to the heart of it. I'm I'm speaking as a CEO reporting into a board. And and if you keep telling yourselves, the board's job is to ask those questions. And sometimes is it, are they checking up? Are they they don't trust me? Do do they not believe me? And it goes to that, you know, they have to, to do their job properly and effectively. They do have to ask those questions and have different routes of getting information and to validate information. So they seem to have done certain things right, like going and getting external people come in and um, as do a report on issues, but follow through and, and taking action or ignoring it or putting it putting, putting it, um, on the long finger or, or, you know, those sort of things make matters worse when you have been told about a problem and then because you knew about this, but what did you do? You said, we did nothing. So. Boards do need to ask, and again, and, and CEOs and staff reporting need to understand that. And uh, you know, we, 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 we come across it that that can create tension. It's reminding the board trustees what the responsibility is, also reminding those that serve the board their responsibilities and that environment of where they have to check. They have to ask. They have to see the evidence. Yeah. And there's such a thing as a healthy tension 
within boards and within subcommittees as well. I think sometimes people forget that, that there can be good conflict. It doesn't always have to be bad conflict. And if people have the self-confidence maybe to challenge each other, that's a really healthy sign. And I think it, it is, as you say, in a healthy way, re-emitting. This is, this is us doing our job. It's not a reflection on the skills, the competence of the CEO or the staff. We have a remit. We have a responsibility. When the inspector calls to the to the charity, it's to the trustees that the questions will be put and to show the evidence of what action is taken. So they have to do that. But again, it's having those discussions and sort of sort of to, to sort of try and remove any sort of tension from it. So remove the tension out by saying we do need to do these sort of things. We do need to put these structures in place because it's to protect the charity, but it's also to protect individuals. Um, basic things, and, and these are highlighted in terms of segregating of duties, you know, money coming in, that it's not down to one person, you know, receiving cash and lodging the cash. You do basic 101 in terms of good financial controls is the segregating of duties. So then somebody checks what somebody else and make sure that that was done properly and that has to be embedded and it's there to protect the charity but also to protect the individuals you know nothing worse in an organization whether it's a charity or any charity when money goes missing the finger of suspicion is on everybody it's until you've proven well who might be the guilty ones or who you might suspect so again they are might seem as tedious or might be seen as bureaucratic over overkill but they're there to protect the charity, first of all, that's the most important, and but also to protect the individuals, whether it's the trustees or the staff or the volunteers in the organisation. Just looking at some of the detail of the inspector's report, there, there was a, one of the problems highlighted was an inappropriate use of credit cards. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that might happen and how it can be resolved? This has come up in a few inspector's reports. Um, so I would ask any of the trustees listening to this, is, well, what is your approach for managing the credit cards. And the question is, do you know how many credit cards are issued in your charity's name? What the limits are, what the controls are them, what they can use be and what they cannot be used for. Do you make sure that, if you, even if you have the policy, that policy adhere to us, the basic things that you should not be using your credit card to take cash out from an ATM. That's a big no-no. Um, you should not be using your credit card for personal expenditure. This is company property, charity property, needs to be used and the rules for using it needs to be very, very clear and reminded to tool. So there's a tendency, because it's convenient to have a credit card, but you would need to say, well, why, how many credit cards have we issued and do we need that many and are we satisfied as a board that there are sufficient controls and sign off? So basic things that the credit card statements are backed up with expenditure receipts, not, not um, till receipts or whatever, pro proper clear that shows that it's clear what this item was um, purchased, you, the credit card used to purchase for, that the proper approval process was in place, that, and there is sign off by, by those controls, and that, you know, particularly say CEO expenses, the board makes sure, do, do we have, is there a member of the board or on the committee of the board that reviews and signs off the CEO's expenses, and does the CEO likewise then approve appropriately the, the, the credit cards but again ask yourself how many credit cards are do we have in place why do we have that number and are we satisfied with the controls because these are ones that have come up a number of charities report of poor oversight and control of the credit cards and i think this can be a really explosive one when it's in the public domain 
because when members of the public look in from the outside and they see a media report where inappropriate use of, of a credit card is highlighted, particularly if it becomes apparent that the credit card was used for the personal gain of the, uh, of the person concerned or for maybe their family members, that's absolutely lethal, isn't it, for, it is. for a charity? And one of the areas that they've identified in the report about inappropriate use of credit cards and expenditure in restaurants and things like that. Um, it's important for sort of say trustees that may be coming from a business background, and I, and I remember my days when I was in the private sector, where entertaining clients or potential clients and going out to restaurants after a meal was part of how you did business. When you're in the charity sector, it's a different environment, and it isn't your money or the company's money, it's charitable funds. And those charitable funds can only be used for advancement of charitable purpose. So things like entertainment and things like that, they're big no-nos. Uh, and, you know, so sometimes if I'm on the board and we're used to doing that, where we say, yes, the CEO, quite rightly, is going out bringing people out to dinner and paying me, it's not good use and not appropriate use, should I say, not even good use, not appropriate use of charitable funds to be used. So again, looking at the policies, making sure... You, that they are used effectively and for that you can say this was clearly associated with the advancement of the purpose. It doesn't mean that you can't travel to events and, and, and have reasonable expenses, but it doesn't mean that you stay in five-star hotels and, 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 and um, have go to, to expensive re re restaurants. Um, so you have to have a different standard when you are spending charitable money because it's not your money, it's not the trustees' money, it's the charity's money, and that has a higher standard of... of, of probably needed around how it's used and you can justify that. So it's really a matter of being hyper alert to how that's managed and also how it's perceived because I think that's important as well how people perceive the actions of uh, of pe people within within the charity. Well, yeah, charities get their funding from um, a number of sources but main sources would be say from public funding or from fundraising so there's a trust that this is public money or, 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 or money given through the state on behalf of the public, that that money is used for the purpose that it was intended to. So using, making sure that that follows through, that you don't, that you don't use money that could be seen for private gain. The inspector's report also raised the issue about inappropriate uh, recruitment of staff. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there? Again, I'm not going into the specifics, as I said, not familiar, but it goes to the principle is what are your recruitment policies and how are those managed? You know, um, this goes back to sort of a, sort of a key policy that of a board needs to have a schedule of reserve powers for the board. And one of the things that should be on that thing is employment. What employment decisions need to be taken by the board? What employment decisions are delegated to the chief executive? And what are the oversights of that delegation of that authority? So we take the example in Carmichael. Any additional to the headcount here, in terms of if we want to create a new post, if we feel that a new post is justified, that would need to be signed off by the board. It's not within the delegated authority of the chief executive. But if I'm filling the post for a vacancy, I have the delegated authority to um, go and fill that, that post, and I notify the board as part of my reporting to the board, but I don't need to get formal to fill an existing post. So it's been clear about what the policies are, then, as I said earlier, policies are only as good as their implementation is, is to see are they adhered to. So again, what is the recruitment policy, um, job contracts, is, you know, because it's illegal to employ people without a job contract, it, you know, regardless whether you're a charity or in the private sector, that's, that's the law of the land. You, know, you need to have formal contracts in place. So be clear who can recruit what, 
and at what level and what's the delegatory. So the schedule of reserve powers may sound like a very boring document, but it's a critical part of that oversight and control function. It starts from that and it flows down to say, these are the items that come to the board, these are what are delegated to the executive, or to the CEO. If we've delegated authority, we need then how do we oversee that that delegation is at properly adhere to according to the policies of the organisation. And of course, when staff are recruited, it's a serious cost implication for the organisation. So perhaps sometimes when a a member of the management tries to take on another member of staff, they don't fully understand. There's a serious long-term cost implication, particularly if you take on somebody on an open-ended contract. It is, you know, um, it's, a, it's a huge financial commitment to, on behalf of the charity, you know, so again, it, it's a big decision. Um, there are, rightly so, employment protection legislation there, so, you know, you, you need to be conscious of that once you reimply somebody and they're doing their job. Re- dismissing them, a bit just difficult, you know, um, unless there's due cause and... and, and, and uh, uh, the legislation and the protections are ad- ad- adhered to and the policies around um, you know, terminating staff contracts and staff employment is followed. But it is a big, big decision. I, I, when I'm doing my board roles um, workshop, I go back to the time when I was a chair of an organisation that was going through a financial difficulty. Um, because our funding, this has come back in the 2010 period when, when we're, we were in a major recession and the charity sector was particularly getting... Um, hit by severe cuts and we as a board were worried about the future sustainability of the organisation and with a lot of the board time was spent on that issue and we came into a board meeting when, and the CEO told us that she had appointed a services manager and we were shocked and stunned you know because we were in a financial crisis with worrying would we be able to continue the charity to the year end and we had that discussion with the CEO and she was assumed that HR matters were her Bailiwick, that she was responsible and she said we needed to make sure that the services were delivered properly and effectively in the best interest of our, our clients and therefore she felt that to protect the quality of the services that she needed to fill that post. And that brought home to me was, you know, we assumed that this, this type of decision wouldn't be taken given the financial. So I said we will write it down in the schedule reserve. Any recruitment over a certain income level had to be formally approved, even if it was a vacancy in that particular situation that we needed, the board would need to be saying we're comfortable that we can take on that commitment at this point in time. So it goes to the sort of thing that policies need to be reviewed on a regular basis because you may go through a particular environment where the, where the policy is no longer fit for purpose because the environment has changed. So that's another important thing to people is review, review, review. Don't assume that the, it is still valid because things can have changed. And so, like your schedule for reserve powers is a, such an important policy document. You need to have a regular reviews of that to say is it still appropriate for the needs of the charity and the current environment in which we are operating. Do we need to adjust it in some way? Sometimes it can be very tight because you're in a very difficult financial environment, and when that improves it may be appropriate to loosen some of those things and you give more delegated authority to the chief executive. You've really highlighted an issue that can arise, and very understandably it can arise, where there's different perspectives coming into play and a manager might see things differently to the board and might feel my particular perspective is perfectly legitimate, but the board, of course, has a, an overriding legitimacy in yeah. making those big decisions. Exactly. Like the chief executive genuinely felt that that was the responsibility and that that, that authority rested with, with her at that time. So, again, 
perspectives might be different and as I said the board has to take a whole of organisation, a whole of charity perspective and say is this the right decision in this particular point in time So, and then be able to communicate that effectively and we haven't. We, as a board we had failed to communicate that, that, that requirement we assumed and the danger with assumptions is, is sometimes people like it don't maybe have this same understanding that you have. So write it down, communicate it, discuss it, tease it out and then review it. Um, can you talk a little bit about the dangers inherent in the recruitment of family members or people related to the CEO, for example? Again, it goes into the concept of whose benefit. And if you have a recruitment of family members into a charity, you know, is this recruitment, and it could be members of the board or it could be members of, of senior, senior management, into the, into the charity, are you recruiting them for the private benefit or the, you know, the, the, the private interest of that is best interest of um, my family or my, uh, or my, my relations that we recruit this person or is this in the best interest of the charity? So from a perception, there is an issue of, you know, there's a conflict there. Is this in the best interest of the charity or are there other influences in that has coloured the decision or have influenced the decision? So that creates that sort of perception that there might be a conflict, that somebody got the job because they're a family member and they, so the the charity regulator would looks looks at these sort of things and and is concerned when you see family members employed in in, in, in the organisation for that you know is you know is it is there a private benefit championing the, the overall needs of the charity so again it's one to be very 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 careful about and have clear policies on it but also then have that discussion about what I I had a uh, while ago a, a, a trustee contacted me it was, we, we do get these type of calls and they said. You know, it was a, a fast-growing charity that was been very, very successful. He was on the board, and his daughter had applied for a position in the organisation. And he said, "I think she'd be brilliant." And I said, "Well, maybe she'd be brilliant, but I think we have immediately conflict. And what's in the best interest? If you feel it's in the best interest of the charity that this person is recruited, I think you should step off the board completely and say, look, and not be involved in whatsoever in the recruitment and the evaluation process. You say, look." My daughter has applied for the position. I think she should be given a fair crack, and I think because of this conflict of interest, loyalty. conflict of loyalty, I'm going to I'm going to step down, and that would be the the, the way way to do it. And it's tricky because this was one of the founding trustees of the organisation, and you know he said if you followed through, there will be that taint over that 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 recruitment decision, and it'll undermine. So it's sort of if in doubt, step out. Uh, I would say. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely understand you, Dermot, and I'm thinking of examples from my own experience of working with boards where people are really completely thrown after the event and when they're called to account for perhaps recruiting a family member inappropriately, they're just nonplussed and they're saying, but I did it in the best interests of the charity. And I think that's really, sometimes it's quite tragic because there was just that inability maybe to stand back and say, look, Whatever your motivations were, it simply was it was destined to create a problem for the organisation. It is a particular issue, we say, of charities where the founders are still directly involved, and there's a tremendous passion of somebody that sees an issue and wants to do something about it and address and puts their whole life into it, and their whole families can be caught up in that that passion of that you know, so they get in, get involved. But it isn't a private enterprise. It isn't a private venture. It, it, once you go for charitable status, it is a charitable organisation. You are working to that charity. So even though you may think that a family member would be the, the, highly suited to perform that role, it is not that. 
you know, because we have that conflict of loyalty, what if there's a problem or if there's poor performance? How do you challenge that? You know, how do you how do you oversight that where you know if there's a husband and wife working in an organisation and the husband is not pulling the the, the weight in the or maybe underperforming? That that's the sort of thing that you have those conflicts of loyalties, conflicts of interest, and on whose interest is is being best served. So, you know, I would recommend that charities avoid getting into that situation because they are fraught with difficulty. Just looking at what happened in Child Fund Ireland, members of the public would quite rightly, when they're reading about it, would say, look, this happens again and again, and the same problems seem to keep repeating. Are we ever going to learn from what happened? It's, it's one that comes up all, all the time when, when, you, when you have, a, and there's been a few recently in, in, in the public domain, you will always have people that will do wrong. Some inadvertently will do wrong or, or, or exercise poor judgment, and there will be those that will do wrong and deliberately do wrong and, and, and fraud. So it's not, it's not confined to the charity sector. You will see any, any, any industry you go across, there are people that will have done bad things and sometimes have been involved in theft or fraud or deliberately um, putting their own private benefit above, above the, the, the organization's benefit. There's an additional sort of pain for those that are in the sector when, when it happens in the charity sector because the charity sector very much depends on the trust of the community, of the public, of the when it operates and it, it's sort of like a stab in your heart when you see bad things going on so we, it carries a higher burden you know we have we know solicitors that have stolen their clients funds but we don't say every 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 solicitor is corrupt or you know um so are are, are, are fraudulent but it goes when you see in charities that people say that they're all at it or it, it is a weakness i would ask people to think about the scale of the sector and it can be there's eleven and a half thousand charities and I can say there are charities that are ex- excellently run, but there are also charities that are poorly run, and there are charities that are, are there are people in charities today that probably are taking doing things that are wrong and some illegal and sometimes are fraudulent. So we will always have that, you know. Any area, say like cash businesses, as I said, you know, it's hard to control whether there's a temptation to t- to take cash and and you know that's flying and put it into your own pocket rather than into the into in, into the till or into the in, into the bank account. So we will always, unfortunately, have cases where there will be evidence of, of, of bad practice, poor governance, poor oversight, and fraudulent behaviour. So what we have to do is make sure that um, the trustees are clear and understand and follow their, their, their oversight and get supported. We have a charity regulator system that's in place that will, where people have concerns and if you have a concern about a particular charity, as I say, the sort of tra- put in a light, the sort of the transparency of sort of spot, put in a spotlight on an issue that you think is not quite right and let the professionals investigate. That's, the charity regulator is there to take the concerns. Some of those concerns may be ill-founded, but that's fine. You don't have to have evidence for a concern that you might have. You just have a concern. I'm not quite sure if things are done right here. Let them do the, 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 the initial probing to, to, to determine if there is something that warrants more investigation and then in, in the ultimate cases where an inspector is, is appointed. So we have the charity regulator, which is good. We have a great increase focus on good governance and the governance code for charities is part of that process of educating and creating that awareness level amongst charities and, and, and boards of charities about the need for good governance practice. 
The other leg of all of that is that the sort of when wrongdoing is identified or suspected of inappropriate, that those are highlighted. So within the internal systems, whether protected disclosure systems in the charity, and even then, if you feel that that may not be appropriate to to raise those concerns with the charity regulator. And there's a legal responsibility to where you come across a concern that a charity may may be the charity's assets or resources are not being used properly or a thing that you bring that to the attention. So we have the mechanisms, but the vast bulk of charities go about their work in a sincere, honest way about and, and want to do the best, but there are times things that may slip or things that sort of you may not have noticed or you, 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 you've been very, very busy on a particular area and other things get neglected. So it, it is constant vigilance is required and that put a big ask. So we would spend a lot of time, as you know, Derek, working with boards and, and, and management in terms of helping to understand and helping them to run their charities to the best effect that they can. But awareness is that there's no perfect charity and a perfect charity today may be an imperfect charity next week. So it's that constant challenge that we have there to do. Um, but I think the environment is much better and there's a much greater awareness. And things as disappointing that they are, like the publication of an inspector's report, it is sort of, oh, here we go again, but it is an opportunity to learn. And I would, that's part of why we felt to do this podcast is to ask if you're a charity trustee or if you're a staff member in a charity, could any of those issues that were identified by the inspectors in Child Fund happen in our charity? Not, oh, hopefully not all of them if there's a, there's a problem, but if there are one or two of those areas, say, let's go back and check. Let's go back and say, look, this came up in the charity. We just want to reassure ourselves that how we manage the credit cards is, is good practice or does it need to be changed? How we deal with expenses and, you know, how we deal with the finance and audit committee structures and the oversight and is the flow of information or do we have domineering people? Because the thing that came in the inspector's report we did mention was that the CEO dominated the meetings. And I know being a CEO, there is a temptation when you're in reporting that you do all the talking. That's not the, the role of board meetings where the CEO is talking 80, 90% of the time. So there, there is a problem there in, in the thing. Simple things about board minutes. They are important records. They're important things as sort of the nature of the conversations that have gone on and the oversight that is happening. And then f- making sure that they are issued and promptly and then if there are inaccuracies that they're picked up straight away. But the board minutes are sometimes are sort of seen as, oh, well, it's just a bit of notes. They are a very important part of the oversight and the control process of the charities, trustee boards, and therefore they need to look at that and say, how effective are our board minutes? How good are we? Are we capturing the sort of the, the critical points that they showed as if an inspector came in and said, right, show me how, where you looked at and reviewed this policy as a board that you discussed and teased this out and said, we had it on the agenda, but we've no minutes on it. So this matter was discussed. So again, looking at those sort of things, um, uh, you know, just sort of reviewing your, 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 how well you're working. And in fact, the Charities Governance Code is a very good mechanism for reviewing how you do things because it really does cover that whole spectrum of all the different aspects to the board's work and does give a board an opportunity to stand back and say, OK, well, how do we, how do we manage the minutes of our meetings? How do we manage the meetings themselves? How do we manage the various relationships in the organisation? I, I think rather than seeing the, the Charities Governance Code as... Um, as a burden, it's actually an opportunity, and it's an opportunity for the board to stand back and say, "Okay, let's just double check that we're doing that what we're doing is is uh, exactly. the best interest of the charity." Exactly, it, it, it gives an excellent framework in which the job of governing the organisation can be done. And one of the resources we released there, you know, we have loads of resources on our website, but 
we did a, a compliance calendar, a simple tool to sort of remind you when we, we check these various areas. Because unfortunately, there's quite a long list of things that the board needs to be reviewing and that they are still in compliance with. So if you go onto our, our website in the resources section and you'll see the, the compliance calendar and have a look around there, you'll find a treasure trove, a lot of useful um, templates and policies that will help, help you in your task. Uh, yeah, we'll come back to some of those resources actually because I just want to run through some uh, useful stuff that's available out there. Just one quick one, Dermot. Um, prospective board members may be looking at what happened in Child Fund. People who are thinking, okay, I'd like to join a board uh, and I'm interested in a particular charity, I'd like to help them by, uh, by joining that board. They may well be thinking now, actually, I don't want to. This is all way too much and too complicated. What would you say to people in that position? Well, first off, the sector needs board members stepping up and there is also a constant need every year for new board members to come on board. There's something like 73,000 charity trustees out there you know, and you know, 5-10% of those will be stepping down or, or leaving those boards. So we, there is a constant need to, to renew the boards. So don't, don't, don't be put off by these things. But what I would say is, like anything, is do your homework, do your due diligence do those sort of discussions and, and ask for information you know uh, on it so ask the charity about where they are regarding the the, the governance code on where they're at have a look at their annual report ask the question you know has the has the charity regulator been in contact or in communication about any issues um affecting the charity so do your homework talk to the ceo talk to the chair Get a sense. If you're not getting happy about the answers you're getting, your problem, then then you may you may need to stop and reflect. Is this the right charity for me? Are their heads in the right place in terms of proper governance effectiveness? Now there will be some charities that will say, look, we've had a number of problems, but we need to fix them, and that's why we want to recruit. So, and if they're open up in front and say, look, these are the weaknesses. We recognise one of the things we need a much stronger board to give us the direction, the oversight, and control that we need. We need to recruit people like you please come on board. But if you find that the, you're getting half answers or evasive or information is not coming, that's a little alarm bell that should be ringing. So I would say do your homework, but please don't be put off because, as I said, the sector needs it and, and just find out where that organisation is heading and what the attitude of the board and of the, of the CEO and the management to good governance. And if you're not comfortable, then maybe then pause and maybe there are other charities out there that do take the whole area of good governance seriously and would probably well, welcome you to come on to there. Their. So again, just don't feel because I'm asked and say, oh, isn't that great? I've been asked to go on the board without doing your homework. Yeah, that's really important. And of course, maybe just to reassure either existing board members or prospective board members, there are lots of resources out there. Uh, Carmichael has a free resources section on its own website. Uh, we, have there. we have an article on 10 questions you should ask before you join a board. And, you know, there's, you know, also there's like Board Match provides a good sort of facility to sort of help match the people that are interested going on board and, and, and go through that process. So, again, there are good resources out there. Carmichael provide them. It's a board Match is another good point of contact. And the Charities Regulators website has a lot of uh, resources as well. Yeah. Yes, there are, there are plenty of resources out there and there are places to go and get advice and, um, and talk to other charity trustees you know, from their experience of what the sort of things, the sort of questions you might need to ask if you're approached to go on to another charity. If you bear with me, Dermot, I might just run through some of the courses, the upcoming courses that Carmichael will be running in the autumn because, in fact, a lot of the topics that we cover... 
directly relate to a lot of the issues that the, uh, the inspector's report raised in relation to Child Fund Ireland. So, for example, financial management is coming up in, in September, uh, and that's uh, being aware of fraud and uh, detection of fraud. Uh, and also financial oversight for board members would be very relevant in terms of what happened with Child Fund Ireland. Uh, we also have um, a course on boards, chairs and CEOs, their relationships and boundaries. And I, that course came about as a result of boards and uh, managers coming to us saying, look, we need to look at this. We need some guidance on where the boundaries lie and how they can be managed. Sometimes they're flexible boundaries, but they do need to be managed. We have training on the governance code, of course, board roles and responsibilities, uh, also the Companies Act and Charities Act, just making sure that trustees understand uh, the legal implications uh, when they're joining a board. Uh, the role of the chairperson is a specific course we provide because we feel uh, that's a key, a linchpin, really, uh, role in the organisation. So people either who are chairs or prospective chairs on boards might be interested in that course. And then we also run uh, a course on strategic planning, among other, other online courses. All of our courses are online. Uh, and we also have e-learning, which is available online as well. So lots of resources available and help available. A lot of our training, of course, is customised as well. So boards that have specific issues will come to us and they'll ask us to do a customised piece of work for them. And that's a very good list of courses that are coming up in the autumn if anybody's interested or even just contacting you Derek on the, any of the customised training and we have loads of resources. You did mention the Charity Regulator website has some fantastic resources are there. Uh, you know they have a very good detailed um, guidance on financial controls you know so you have, go in and have a look at our resources section or the resources section in the Charity Regulator. Um, ask yourselves as a board do we need, what are, what are our training needs, what are the gaps do we have as a individuals and as a collective and what are we going to do about addressing those over the, over the coming year because the Governance Code identifies the need for ongoing development of charity trustees because it is a complex task and some of those who may be refresher courses but others might be just to enhance your skills and understanding in a particular area so plenty of training there, plenty of resources um, available plenty of guidance and, you know, Carmichael, we spend a lot of our time talking to CEOs and charity trustees and board chairs on these type of issues because there is a really genuine commitment to run their charities well, but it is, it is a complex and demanding task. So we, we might wind up our discussion today on what has been a very serious topic, but I think a note of reassurance at the end, particularly when people can see there are resources and help out there. So we would ask people to check out www.carmichaelireland.ie to see a full list of our training courses and resources in Carmichael, and we're always available to help. So thank you, Dermot. Hopefully this has been a useful exercise for anybody listening, and we'll be back soon with more podcasts. So from myself, Derek O'Reilly, and from Dermot O'Carby, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Eric. It was a great, great conversation. Thank you.